Thank you everyone for joining us for our March 2017 Knowledge Management Podcast. This is Lauren Trees, the KM Principal Research Lead here at APQC, and I am very pleased to be uh, joined by Carla O'Dell, our CEO and uh, KM Guru uh, here in the room. I'm delighted to be here, Lauren. It's fun to do these with you. So we're just going to talk about a couple of topics in the knowledge management space or that touch the knowledge management space that have come up recently that we are interested in and uh, just have a, have a chat and, and see where we go with it. So one of the things that I have been most interested in in the collaboration space recently is this move we've seen from some organizations that have, are really some early adopters in the you know virtual work and virtual collaboration space like IBM and Yahoo, um, potentially moving away from uh, virtual work and asking employees to come into the office or to come into certain regional centers. And I, I'm not looking to hash out the business decisions or motivations of any particular company, but one of the reasons that IBM has given for this recent change is to promote what they're calling a collaborative, agile working environment. So I thought from a KM perspective, it would be interesting to talk about some of the assumptions behind that, some of the implications for that as, as well. And I'm really interested in this because it intersects with some of the research that we've been doing late last year and early this year around envisioning the workspace of the future, uh, where we examine collaboration trends and preferences over more than a thousand professionals, uh, you know, across industries and across different types of roles. Um, and I think what we saw in that data set is a real tension in the workplace where employees, they want increased flexibility and they want the opportunities for remote work. And for organizations, they want the opportunity to source that talent, uh, you know, in a geographically neutral way. Um, but then when you ask people, how do you really want to collaborate and get things done in the workplace? They inevitably say, oh, I want to be face to face. I want to meet. And then when organizations are going through any kind of innovation cycle or reinvention, they tend to want to circle the wagons and bring everybody back into into the office. So, you know, I really just wanted an opportunity to talk about, you know, what about face-to-face -face collaboration is particularly conducive to agility and innovation, or is that a fallacy, something we believe that isn't actually true? And then given the, that we have to become more comfortable in a virtual working environment over the long term, I think we all see see that's where the puck is headed. You know, how do we replicate those experiences in a virtual sphere? Yeah, Lauren, I think it's a fascinating topic. I mean, most of us remember a few years ago when Melissa Mayer came into Yahoo and said, enough of this at-home stuff, let's get together. There was already so many problems in Yahoo that they couldn't really pull it out at that point with that. But if you look at why people do this, it's really, to me, interesting because I think the agility... Well, there's a reason that co-location has been the number one predictor of innovation for centuries. Whether you're talking about at the city level, where, you know, there'll be a city like Florence or a city, you know, like London where innovation is taking place, um, or, you know, uh, Boston or Silicon Valley, all the way down to 
um, the old Bell Laboratories, which is still used as the sort of iconic example of a rotten buildings, but people met in the hallways. And you see the Apple headquarters and others. Because there's two, the reason for the agility is, I think, multiple reasons. One is that if you're co-located, you can have what we call orchestrated serendipity. People will run into each other and ideas will intersect. And it's at that uh, intersection of ideas from different disciplines and different issues that that innovation occurs. So I think that's part of it. Part of it is if you're co-located, you have the opportunity to have more impromptu meetings. And if you're in a rapidly changing or evolving situation, getting a formal meeting together is going to slow down the process. And between those meetings, change is happening, and one group is operating on one set of assumptions about what's going on in the world, the other group is working on a completely different set. I mean, it's changing so fast. So there's, I don't think there's any question that co-location makes you more agile. Whether we can afford to always do it when we're not in the uh, the mode of rapid change, I don't know. But I clearly think there's, I can't imagine that there's any uh, substitute for that if you have the luxury of having it. Well, and I think you said something really interesting about the, the creative abrasion of bringing different disciplines together that happens naturally when you are in the same location you don't necessarily have an agenda and a a clear outcome for Mm -hmm. a meeting like that. And in the virtual space, I think people tend to say, oh, we got to have an agenda and we got to know exactly why we're bringing people together. It's much more conducive to a formal meeting Mm -hmm. environment. And just that conversation at the coffee bar or in a conference room where you just grab a couple people to test out an idea and I I think that's a lot harder to create in, in a virtual space where you have more planning necessarily in, in a lot of cases. Well, and there's a, a book I'm reading now, and I'm going to interview the author, Scott uh, Soenshine. Uh, the book's called Stretch, and he makes the point with data that meetings are unproductive because they're so well planned. And, you know, we've all been taught don't have these unplanned, unagenda meetings. Well, it turns out that the good stuff doesn't necessarily happen. I mean, when you're into execution, you need a well thought out, well planned meeting, but uh, it can get in the way of creativity. You just end up reporting out instead of boring. Yeah, yeah, nothing new that happens in that kind of circumstances. So there, there's a place for everything, and I think the co-location may be a luxury that we ought to invest in when we are trying to invent or in the middle of rapid change. So it's not a either or; it's an if when. And one other thing in terms of agility that I was thinking about when we have done our research on transformational change, large-scale organizational change, the number one most effective enabler communication method that people cite is is in-person meetings and in-person collaboration. I think change management is more difficult when you have a virtual workforce, Um, you know, so when you're trying to be agile and not only, you know, to change your products and services, but to change yourself a little bit, I, I think that that can be real challenging uh, in the virtual space. I, oh, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. The If I'm feeling insecure, which is what does happen in any sort of change, unsteady in some way, being around other people makes a huge difference. Otherwise, people just sort of lose the or leave the orbit and kind of spin out and leave the organization. You see that loss or lack of engagement happening too. Um, there may be a productivity cost to working virtually too. I mean, there uh, depends on the kind of work you're doing. 
there could be a productivity cost too, not just an innovation cost. Well, I think one thing that we've seen in our research is a, a real desire to have spaces for quiet work and reflection and working at home may be one of those spaces, yes. but also to be able to harness specific times for collaboration. So I think it's important to distinguish between okay, I'm going to come into the office three or four days a week and collaborate with people and have meetings and have that kind of in-person experience. And then these two days a week, I'm going to work at home and I'm just going to sit and knock stuff out. Yeah. Um, versus I'm going to be 100% virtual working from home and, and, and not have those face-to-face interactions. I think they're two, they're two different modes. Right. And it's not, again, it's not an either or. It's an and sort of thing. Let's do both. Because you're right, you know, if what, if you're into production mode, distraction is not what you need. And we're going to have a keynote speaker at the conference, Cal Newport, is going to talk about the importance of undistracted deep work. And one of the questions you had raised uh, is, so if we're going to go to virtual, how do we replicate this in a virtual environment? You know, you have the technology implications. We can do video conferencing. Again, you lose all the impromptu stuff, so we'll hold that for the moment. But let's say we just want to be able to see each other. Or you want to be able to reach out to somebody quickly, and you can use Slack or some other IM. But that's just distracting. You got to stay on that thing all day, and you know it's not conducive to deep work. So, so can you, you have times when you're available on yes. Slack, almost like office hours? Yes. Um, and then times when you say, "No, I'm I'm not going to be on these eight different collaboration tools that you want me to use. I'm mm-hmm. going to sit and turn everything off." And, and write or analyze or do that really deep thinking that, you know, organization pays me for. Right. Uh, we, we I think that's agree. a challenge. We should agree when those times are, too. So, like, some companies do that. Every Friday morning, we just, there's a no email, no meeting time. Get the all that stuff done you couldn't get done earlier in the week or whatever. But agreement so that people aren't left waiting for somebody else. And and one thing I have been thinking about in terms of replicating some of this in the virtual sphere is as we move more towards virtual reality and augmented reality and a more immersive experience and technology, do some of these barriers that I think we feel uh, around innovation in in the, you know, in the virtual sphere, does some of that, you know, fall away? I think it's better. We've all sat in a day-long virtual meeting. It is so hard to stay engaged. And there's something so fun about, and maybe this is just me being weird, locking yourself in a room to figure something out and you can color on the wall, you know, and you can move around and you can look at each other and you get excited about those ideas. And and I wonder whether when we get really more sophisticated virtual reality opportunities, we'll be able to replicate more of that that fun, visceral experience. It's definitely going to be closer until you get a sensorium where you can really feel each other's body heat. I guess we're not going to do that, but it's going to be better. No question. But it still requires you to go to a place to have that happen. A scheduled time. I'll guarantee you it's going to be so expensive, whatever rooms we have, that people will schedule them. So the impromptu part you lose. So we have to find a balance. And the one other thing that I was thinking about in terms of the informal water cooler type conversations is we're in the midst of doing all of our interviews for our next generations communities and networks project. And I think we're seeing a lot more organizations that are having those informal communities of interest. And even if they're not on business topics, 
paralleling their more business-oriented strategic communities of practice, um, you know, and really feeling like not only to get people comfortable with the technology, but just to build relationships and have those kinds of water cooler conversations that yeah. then may segue into a more business context, but at least to have interaction with people from different locations and different functions and things yeah. like that, that might then spur those kind of creative abrasion moments, if you will. I agree. You got to have know something about somebody personally that makes you feel more comfortable with them. I mean, we are. A so for our second topic, we wanted to talk about something that Carla and I are really excited about because we just sat through a member-only webinar featuring Alec Gupta, who is the data science manager for Airbnb. And he was nice enough to come talk to our APQC KM audience about both internal knowledge sharing and how he role models knowledge sharing behaviors within the organization, but also some of the different ways that Airbnb builds trust among strangers that are interacting on the platform to share rooms in their houses, to, to share their houses, which is a, a an activity that requires some trust. Um, and give us just a different lens to look at some of the, the trust issues that, that we deal with in terms of knowledge management, engagement, and knowledge sharing. So I think the webinar was full of some really interesting stuff. But as Alec was speaking, I was thinking a lot about how some of those concepts really translate um, in terms of building trust on the Airbnb platform or any kind of peer-to-peer -peer economy type of platform, you know, in how that translates into the enterprise KM environment. Um, and one of the things that he talked about, because he's a data scientist, they look at what are the drivers of trust, was around the use of photographs of the spaces that people rent as, as a major fact in establishing trust in this virtual environment. And obviously it makes sense that you'd wanna see exactly what you're renting. But I'm really interested in the role that, that images and video play in how we process and evaluate information and how I think that's changing a little bit and some of the implications for Enterprise KM. Yeah. Well, First, trust has always been a big issue, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a contrarian for just a minute that I'm not sure in the world as we move forward that trust is as much a barrier as it was before. The reason I say that is we have a whole generation that's grown up in this, what I consider a emotionally impoverished realm of virtual work, you know, almost completely a virtual interaction. And so they've learned to trust in that kind of environment, but they do rely on ratings very, very much. So, you know, it's that to me, I'm just not sure how important it's as if it's going to be as important or if it's going to be different. Have you got any thoughts on that? So I think that's really interesting, but I feel like when I get out there and talk to people about their usage of KM systems and reuse of information, I think when your job's on the line, I mean, I remember I was at one of the big oil and gas companies here in Houston talking to somebody about, you know, reusing some analysis about where you're going to drill a very expensive hole in the ground. And he just looked at me and he said, there is no way that I'm going to reuse something that somebody else did for that. This is my job and my reputation and my expertise on the line. I'm going to redo all of that and make sure that I feel comfortable with it before I sign off on it. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's 
there's some cultural elements. I think the, you know, millennials and younger people coming into the, into the workplace are more comfortable with virtual trust. But I also think there's a difference between do I trust you enough to be on Facebook with you? And do I trust you enough to take a piece of work that you have done and reuse it and incorporate it into what I'm doing and, and, um, you know, my work product? Yeah. So it's really, I think you have a good point that when it's mission critical or there's a high risk uh, personally to it, that people are less likely. So I think the trust issue in communities, for example, for a long, has been around the content. Can I trust the content? Not can I trust you as a person? necessarily but can I trust the content and there there is a question of replicability and data we know that's one of the huge controversies right now in the behavioral sciences that a lot of the things we take for granted that are true about how human beings behave they can't replicate those studies 70 percent of them can't be replicated that's really scary you know when we build so anyway that's an example of I can understand why a drilling engineer would go I don't think so on that but don't you feel like our trust of the person and our trust of the content are intrinsically linked? And that's why when somebody sits next to you and you have lunch with them twice a week, you're more likely to trust what they tell you than somebody that you know in the virtual sphere? It is, but if they're a rotten writer, unlike you, I'm not going to use their writing. You know, So it's really that trust in the workplace is based on, did I deliver against what I said I was going to? How much integrity do I have? Which is... Do I deliver what I say I'm going to? And can I trust the quality of this content? And that's where the rating system comes in because people at work don't want to rate content of each other because it seems so judgmental. And that's what, you know, they can do that at Airbnb. And I love the rating system. And they try to make it anonymous. And and you can, uh, you have a chance to, because there's money involved and reputation, you have a chance to kind of change the rating opinion of the host or the guest. Uh, before it gets published, but uh, I think there's some ways around it in the workplace. If we will not make it, if we will depersonalize it a little bit, for example, instead of asking people, did you like this content, which, you know, we'll come back to why people don't even want to take the time to do that, ask them, was, was it helpful, and did you use it? Yes, no, yes, no. And it has nothing to do with that person who posted it, but was it helpful, did you use it? That's what people want to know. Yeah, I think that we're definitely seeing that in the community study that we're doing now. We're talking to at least one, maybe two organizations that are having some success with, I'm going to call it a feedback system. It's not ratings, but it is around that. It's, you know, um, it's it's people posting tools and templates that they're using mm-hmm. and, um, you know, did I use it and did it save me time? Did it? Did I get right, some exactly. value from it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's okay to say no. It might not have been the right match, the right fit for sure. what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Versus no, this is yeah. Because you socialize it first. You say the no means that it, for my particular application at this moment in time, it was not used. I didn't. I didn't reuse it. I guess a Microsoft look at a reuse uh, indicator as one uh, indicator of value of content. They do being transferred. And I think you can do that. I do think it's to get people to actually do it, though, it's got to be so in the flow of the moment and so easy because nobody's got time to go offline and fill out a survey. So, yeah, putting it in the flow really will make a lot of difference. So I think that the Airbnb and the peer-to-peer rates have done a lot of things right. Um, and when you rate them, you really are sort of rating an experience. And in the workplace, we're trying to rate content because it's the high-value content that I want. So just find figure out a way to make that easy for people. 
Yeah, I think it's content, but I also do think you're rating the quality of, of expertise. You're not, yeah, especially true. when you get into expertise location, if you're yeah. trying to pick who am I going to contact of this list of 12 experts or 120 experts that right. the system has, has spit out to say might be able to answer my question. So, you know, you you want somebody who knows something. You want somebody who is going to be able to articulate what they know. I mean, that's important too. You can talk to the greatest expert in the world, but if they can't tell you what they know, then you're not going to get a lot of value out of that. Um, you, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of different elements to, to the social feedback, um, depending on what you're looking for. Right. Well, one element you, you touched on is not really trust per se, but it's what is the likelihood this person will respond to me in a way that won't make me feel like an idiot? You know, that there, it's a social interaction that's going to happen. Is it not I, an element of trust, though? I mean, I think... It is at a different level. It's when not you take it to the, to the user experience, you know? It um, is. I guess you're right. Can I trust that I'm safe in this relationship or this interaction, this transaction? Yeah, I think you're right. It's important. And the, the way that gets established is through interaction and experience or through somebody vouching for somebody. That makes a big difference. Well, and that's why I think comments, you know, sort of like the LinkedIn endorsements can be valuable in the workplace, especially if people have had a really positive experience with somebody where it's worth it to yeah. to give that kind of feedback. Um, I, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can take this. And as millennials are coming up in the workplace and making some decisions about um, the kind of options that are put into these systems and also getting to critical mass of, of using them that may, we may see, start to see some of the trends shift there in terms of people using those kinds of social feedback mechanisms and being comfortable with it. Well, you bring up the point a lot mentioned at the end of his call uh, of his webinar yesterday, which is the single, single identification, the merging of the ratings of your off and your online work and your off and online life, I mean, so that how you behave on Facebook and how you behave as a host at Airbnb is also a rating that comes into play at work. I mean, in other words, you are you no matter where you are. How do you feel about that? that, you know, a rating by somebody you dated at some point. I think it really creeps me out. I don't know if that's a, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the right answer there, but I think, and maybe it's a generational thing, but you feel like you ought to be able to have one persona at work and another one in your personal life. And I think younger people feel that less. I think that, and that may be part of that trend, but I definitely don't feel like I want those two worlds to merge as much as I think maybe they are. I want my privacy and I want to, uh, we know one of the pieces of behavioral science work that is replicable over and over and over and over and over again is that behavior is situation specific. You think you're you no matter where you are. Well, you behave very differently. If I'm here on a podcast with you versus if I'm at a, a bar having an after dinner drink versus whether I'm having that drink with the client versus I'm having it with my best friend. I mean, our behavior is very different. But don't you think that's okay? It's the way it should be. Yeah. yeah that's I, why I, think I don't the, think, I don't think it's, it's like what we do to politicians where we expect them to be on 100% of the time. I think it actually drives really bad behavior at a certain point because mm-hmm. people just start to break down from having to have that public persona 24-7. So I totally agree. I, to, I mean, these 
I'm saying I don't behave the same way. I don't want to be rated the same way. And I want my privacy. I would, however, like to have a single sign-on password, but I can get that through 1Password or some other kind of application. Yeah, I think you can divide the the technological integration Mm -hmm. with saying, um, this is who I am at work, and these are the things that you should be judging me on at work. Because doesn't that get so hairy? I can just see HR executives' heads exploding when you start talking about that. Because there's so many things that we're not allowed to evaluate people on in the workplace that become a big part of their offline persona, whether it's ethnicity or age or, you know, a whole whole range of factors that we, you know, we don't evaluate people on in the workplace. Yeah. Um, or at least or how they do. Yeah, or how they look. You know, one of the things that video does in pictures on profiles is you say, oh, well, that makes somebody look real. Well, this was the other thing a lot brought up, and every HR department in Europe knows this, the phenomenon he called homophily. I hadn't heard that word spoken by a human being before, and it means that we tend to like people who look like us and tend to distrust a little bit more those that don't. So if we're starting to show pictures of people, the Europeans don't do that. The reason we show pictures is... You're starting to look like people that look like us. Now, you know, that's a little bit of a problem. Ratings can overcome that. That's what I thought was so interesting was his point, was that once you have the ratings reach a critical mass, it takes away that homophily bias Mm -hmm. um, that people have on the Airbnb system to renting to people who are like them. Um, So hopefully there's there's an upside there as we build this social feedback and also find ways to to pick it out of the the digital dust, as you like to say, Carla, um, you know, that we can build a more holistic picture of people. So even if we're showing their image, there's so much information about them that we can overcome people's biases. Because I do like pictures. It does make people more real. This is a fascinating topic. This is, we are not at the end of the conversation in the future about trust. Well, I think we're going to keep talking about it, and we will definitely be talking about it at APQC's Knowledge Management Conference here in Houston on April 27th and 28th. So we uh, we hope to see some of you there. All the most trustworthy people will be there. Absolutely. See you next month. <laughs>